after a week's uh, break, where uh, I experienced uh, Parshas Balosacha for the second time and then flew past uh, Shalach back into Korach, and here we are to consider Chukas. So uh, I, I received a new insight into the idea of Ein Muktam Mu'ukhar Batorah. In any event, <coughs> as we turn our deliberations to Parshas Chukas, and of course at the beginning of Chukas is the Para Aduma, is the red heifer. And let's take a look, a close look, as, as we can, to the opening uh, section of the, of the Parsha. So, Pasuk Aleph, Vayidaber Hashem, El Moshev, Alaron Leimor, Zos Chukas HaTorah. This is the Chukas HaTorah, the statute of the Torah, we, we would translate that Hashem is commanded, saying, speak to Bnei Yisrael, and they should take a para aduma. Now, as much as we were familiar with the Pasuk, but we should note that there seems to be a uh, shift in the intuitive order of these phrases. How so? Generally speaking, when Moshe is told to introduce a pasuk, so the way that it goes is, Hashem says to Moshe, tell B'nai Yisrael the following. Dabero B'nai Yisrael, and then say what there is to say. Here, it seems, there is what to say even before Moshe has started speaking. By which we mean, the intuitive, or following the norm, it would have said, Hashem says to Moshe, Daber al Bnei Yisrael, speak to Bnei Yisrael, and then say what there is to say. Zos chukas this is the chuk of the Torah, they should bring you the para aduma. But what's interesting is the first two phrases have been inverted, whereby we hear that it's chukas but that's before Moshe, Hashem tells Moshe to speak to Bnei Yisrael. Is that not also part of the message? It's only a message for Moshe. It's a message for everyone. So that is the, it's a, it's a nuanced question, one really with attention to detail, to, to, to note that uh, these two phrases seem to be out of order. Okay. <clears throat> what else do we know about uh, the Para Aduma? There's a very interesting medrash which states that there have been a number of para-adumas, or paros-aduma, or whatever they are, a number of para-adumas in, in, in our history. Moshe's was the first. And the Medrash states, what happens with the para-aduma? It, it's burnt, and then the ashes are mixed with water, says the Medrash, Yalkut Shimoni. Some of the ashes from the original para-aduma of Moshe were mixed into the ashes of all subsequent para-adumas. And that's very interesting, because as far as we know, all para-adumas are effectively the same. I mean, the halachas that govern Moshe's para-aduma are exactly the same that those that govern. It's called a chukas olam. It's an ongoing statute, whenever possible, whenever relevant. So there's no difference between the para aduma of Moshe and the, and the subsequent. And his was the first. Okay, but you know, were the hairs 
on the Para Adum of Moshe redder than, than those of subsequent uh, Para Adumas? Not that we know. Why then is there meaning or any value of mixing in the ashes from the original Para to, to those of others? <coughs> There's a very interesting comment in the Gemara. We talk about smichus partios, which we do from time to time. Juxtaposition of sections. And if you look at what follows Para Aduma, you'll see that it is immediately followed by the death of Miriam. Bamidbar Perak Yotes is all about Para Aduma. And Bamidbar Kaf begins with the death of Miriam, which leads into the Memariva, because when she died, there was no water. The Gemara, and Rashi cites it, the Gemara notes the juxtaposition of these two things. Para Aduma with the death of Miriam, and says, from here we learn, the death of Tzadikim is like Korbanos. Just like Korbanos atone, so too does the death of Tzadikim atone. And what's interesting is <coughs> that uh, this is one of a number of statements that we have from Chazal, which compare the death of Tzadikim and, and show the, the, the atoning value. But, but there we go. So one of four state, such statements, which says, once again, that in the same way, the death of Miriam is like Para Aduma. Just like the uh, Para Aduma is Mechaper, as a Korban, so too the death of Miriam. By the way, just parenthetically, before we move into to the, the matter itself, why do we... Uh, get involved in smichus parshas, as we've mentioned in the past. Whenever Chazal and certainly Rashi derive a lesson from two things having been put together, the premise is that we would assume that they should not be put together, and, and therefore they have almost like unnaturally been put together in order to uh, teach us a lesson. But what's unnatural about the, the death of Miriam after Para Aduma? After the Para Aduma, which was said in the second year. There's a break of 38 years before, before that and, and May Mariva and the hitting of the rock. It's not announced in the Chumash. It just goes from one to the other. But actually, there were 38 empty years. When we learned Parshas uh, uh, Chukas back in school, our teacher actually told us at that point to close the Chumash and reopen it in order to, to impress upon us that it's a completely new time, it's a completely new generation. We thought he just wanted to, to uh, involve us in something called a chok and uh, close and open for no reason. But in fact, it was to, to emphasize these 38 missing years. And the first thing that happened in year 40 is the death of Miriam. So why should one, should, should one have expected something else to be mentioned there? If that's the first thing, that's why it's mentioned first. So what's the basis for, for smichus parshios? But the answer, rather, is not why is it that Miriam is the first thing mentioned after Para Aduma. But why is Para Aduma mentioned just before the death of Miriam? Para Aduma is not the last thing to happen in, in that first or second year in the Midbar. Para Aduma was already operational in the setting up of the Mishkan. But many things happened after that. So rather, it's the deferring of the Torah's description of Par Aduma to put it next to the death of Miriam. That's the basis for Smichus Parshios. And the lesson, as we said, is just like Korbanos atone, so too 
it does the death of tzaddikim. There's just one problem, and that is the paraduma is not a korban. And moreover, the paraduma does not atone. The role of the para aduma is not to bring atonement because what it does is not about anyone doing anything wrong. Atonement is in response to sin. What's the para aduma for? If a person is Tome Mace, came into contact with the Mace, he's Tome, and then the para aduma is a way of getting him to her. It's not a sin to become Tome Mace, unless you're a Cohen, but, but uh, for, for a normal Jew, it's not a sin, it's a state, and it gets him out of that state. So there is no aspect of sin or atonement that, that applies to the para aduma. And Rashi says this explicitly, because later on the Torah will call the para aduma a chatos. And Rashi says, don't think chatos means a sin offering. There's no sin here. Mechate means to wipe away. It wipes away mechate, like mimchatim, things that wipe. It wipes away his impurity, that's all. But now we're in a state of some tension between the Gemara, which derived the death of Tzadikim atones like para aduma, sounds like the para aduma atones. But then we, we proceed to discover that the para aduma doesn't. There's nothing to atone for. There's no sin. It's not. A, it's not a sin offering. So is it an is it an offering or is it not? Does it atone or does it not? Enter the Nitziv. The Nitziv in the Hamikdavar explains, makes Seder in the Parsha for us, as he, as only he can. Says the Nitziv, Para Aduma does not come to bring atonement. In general. However, there was an element in the very first Para Aduma that pertained there, which does not exist in subsequent para adumas. Namely, the very first para aduma was, was brought when the Jewish people are just now recovering from the Cheta Ega. They've done all sorts of things. And they've, there's been Yom Kippur, and they built the Mishkan. But within the capacity at that time of their fundamental recovery from the Cheta Ega, you have para aduma. And that is the famous medrash, which says the para is the mother, is the mother cow. The eagle is the child. It gives its famous uh, marshal of the child who made a mess in the king's palace. And they say, let, let the mother come and clean up the mess. Of course, nowadays they say, let the father come also, at least to watch. But let the mother come and clean up the mess that was true for the first para aduma. Beyond that, it's only about getting purity from Tomas Mace. And we should realize that this understanding of the uniqueness of the first para aduma has halachic implications. How so? Have a look at Pasuk Gimel. Who is the one who should be taking care of the, uh, oversee the procedure of the para aduma? Pasuk Gimel reads, Unisatem osa el elazar hakohen. Give it to Elazar. Who is Elazar? Son of Aaron. What are his credentials? What's his status? 
He is a regular Cohen, or maybe a deputy Cohen. There's such a thing, Sagan Cohen. But of course, he's not the Cohen Godel. The implication is, somehow, that the Para Aduma needs to be dealt with a normal Cohen, and not a Cohen Godel. Is that true on an ongoing basis? It's clear from the Gemara that that is not true. There is no reason in the world why for, for in Para Aduma, a Kohen Godel cannot take care of it. It doesn't have to be a normal Kohen, or a, a regular Kohen, or a deputy Kohen. Kohen Godel is just fine, generally. But not this time. Not the first. Because who, who was the Kohen Godel at that time? It's Aaron. And with this, we enter the very complicated discussion of Aaron's role in making the Egel Hazav. Because physically, he made it, we discussed this a few weeks back, under duress, but he does not emerge untainted from that episode. And that's why we say, Ein kategor nasa sanego. Rashi, Rashi cites this. The, the, the prosecution can't be the defense. The one who made the Egel cannot be in charge of the, of the para aduma. And that is why it has to be his son, Elazar. That's what's behind the insistence that it's Elazar specifically, but says the Nitzib, but that's only true for the first Paraduma, because it's only the first one that has this element of atoning for the Cheta Egel. And therefore, if it's atonement for the Egel, it's, it can't be the Kohen Gadol. That's a halacha. But any Paraduma beyond that, there's no reason why not. So we see again this idea, it has halachic implications for. Um, for the for the procedure of the para aduma, and let's let's keep going, because we can now understand again from the from the big ideas to the nuanced details. We now understand why the word zos chukas haTorah, which introduced the para aduma, are are kind of outside of Moshe's message to the people. We would have expected. Say to the people, etc. But a chok means we don't know what it's doing, or we don't know what it's all about. That's true in general for the para aduma. But for this time, there was an element that the people understood very well. It's coming to be mechaper for the cheta eagle. And therefore, Moshe's words to the people, the Torah tells us that it's a chok, but it's not Moshe's introduction, because it's, one could say, more, it's beyond a chok that very first time. And that's why it's in the Pasuk, but it's not captioned within Moshe's message to the people. And finally, we can understand, says the Nitziv, why it is that on the one hand, Rashi insists that the Pora Aduma does not come to atone. And if you see the word chatos in the verse, it doesn't mean sin. And it doesn't mean atonement. It means to wipe away the impurity of Tumas Mace. There's no element of sin in the Parsha. That's true. And yet, on the other hand, we learn from the juxtaposition of Para Aduma to the death of Miriam that it atones like a korban. Is the Para Aduma an atoning force or is it not? Says the Nitziv. The answer is yes. It's both. Meaning, in general, Ledoros, subsequent Para Adumas, there's no aspect of sin there. It's just about. Uh, getting Tara from 
Tumas Mace, from Tuma impurity with the, with the deceased. But the very first Para Aduma did have an aspect of Kapar, because the very first Para Aduma came to clean up the mess of the Cheto Egel. And it, the juxtaposition of that first Para Aduma, together with Miriam, that gives us the it gives us the, the lesson that Misa's Tzadikim, the, de- the death of the Tzadikim, is Mechaper. Achar Hadvarim Ha'ele. Once the Nitziv has really opened up the, the Parsha for us, we can also now understand why it is, and this is the Medrash with which we began, that every subsequent Para Aduma also has some of the ashes of the Para Aduma of Moshe mixed in. Why? What does it have that they don't have? They're all para-adumas, quite so. But as we've seen, it does have something that they don't have. It, it, it allows for the atonement of the Cheto Egel. And what is our relationship with the Cheto Egel on an ongoing basis? Rashi famously tells us, it's from the Gemara in Sanhedrin, that as much as the Cheto Egel, the sin of the golden calf, was fundamentally atoned for at the time, but it was not complete, the atonement was not complete. Hashem's own words in Parshas Kisisa, Uviyom Pokdi, Ufakadati Alem Avona. If I call them to reckoning over something else, I will remember this as well. It's not fully, fully over. It's, it lingers a little bit. There was, there was no absolute atonement. There was a fundamental atonement. But the rest continues over time. In the words of the Gomorrah, there isn't any generation that doesn't receive a taste of the punishment for the Cheta Egel, a trace element of the punishment for the Cheta Egel. Well, if that's the position that the Cheta Egel was fundamentally atoned for, but there remain aspects of atonement in future generations, we can now understand why the Para Aduma of Moshe, which came as part of the atonement, trace aspects of it are then mixed in with the Para Aduma of all future generations in order to deal with the trace uh, lingering effects of, of the Cheta Egel itself. So this is the classic uh, approach of the Netziv to the Para Aduma, certainly an eye-opener in terms of Parshanut. And with this in mind, we come now to what is clearly the centerpiece of, uh, of Parshas Chukas, what's known as the Memeriva, the, the sin of the rock, however that works. Many, many different explanations and understandings. The psukim themselves are not unequivocal. And that's what allows for different understandings of what happened. And we have dealt with this many times in the past, but I would like this evening to present an approach to the Memeriva, which I venture to suggest with no fear of exaggeration. It will be like nothing that we have heard before. And the Memeriva may, ne- may never look the same again. <coughs> it comes from the writings of Rabdovid Tevel. Rabdovid Tevel, who uh, was one of the two outstanding Talmidim of Rabchaim Yvelozhin. Rabchaim Yvelozhin's two great disciples, Rabbi Yaakov of Karlin and Rabdovid Tevel of Minsk. And it was, a, it was a big position, the Rav of Minsk. In fact, it's worthwhile just to get a sense of the type of people that we're talking about to, to uh, present briefly how Rabdovid Tevel came to be the Rav of Minsk. It happened to be that, uh, as is often the case, before uh, attaining uh, the big position, the, the Rabbanim began in, in small villages, and that's, uh, that, that's how it begins. And it was <coughs> Rabdavid Tevel, I don't remember the, the name of the, of the village, but he's the Rav there, he's the Avbezdin, 
and one day there's a Din Torah between two people. And one of them is very rich, and one of them is very poor. And the, and, and the poor person says, the rich one owes me money. So Din Torah is a delicate thing, because you can't favor a poor person just because he's poor. You, you can't favor the rich just because they're rich. You, justice is blind. You've got to say what the halacha is. But sometimes there is a halachic position which says, are you liable to pay? Potter midine adam, exempt as far as earthly bezdin, but chayev midine shamayim. If you wish to, to be, uh, acquit yourself vis-a-vis the hands of heaven, so then you should pay. But the bezdin can't make you pay. There is, there is a, a, a designation like that. And that's what turned out in this case. The rich man is, is after reviewing all of the facts, it turned out that he's potter, exempt from an earthly point of view, chayev midine shamayim. So he was very happy to hear this, the rich Kavir, because he, basically he only heard the first part of the sentence, which says that he's Potter, midine Adam. I mean, that's really the, everything else is commentary, but this is really the, the making. And, and, and he makes his way to leave the Bezdin. And the young Ribdovit Tevel says to him, not so fast. You're Chai of Bidine Shammai. So he turns, this, this uh, Gavir, a well-to-do person, influential person, he turns to the young Rav and says, but that's Bidei Shamayim. But this is the best. Do I have to pay? And Rabdavid Tevel says, yes, you have to pay. In my Bezdin, if you're rich and he's poor and you are Chai Bidei Shamayim, you do not leave until you pay. And this Gavir was a little bit uh, taken aback. No one had ever spoken to him in this way. And Rabdavid Tevel, he's putting him, his, 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 himself on the line a little bit. But he was very firm on that point. You're chai bidin shamayim, and you're rich, and he's poor. You don't leave until you pay. And in the end, the guy paid. What's the follow-up to the story? Many years later, the Kehillah of Minsk was looking for a rabbi. Minsk is a choshevishtel. On the panel of those who were to choose the rav was this Gavir. And he says to the rest of the people on the, community, on, the, on the committee, I will tell you who your Rav is. And he told them this story and he said, if he stood up to me that way, you can be sure he is incorruptible. He is your next Rav. And that's how Abdovatello came to be the Rav of Minsk. So just even these, these uh, snapshots, uh, uh, as they're called, to get a sense of the level of, of, uh, of integrity and, and uh, fortitude that these, these people lived <coughs> certainly uh, behooves us all the more to pay attention to their words, and let us begin, as we so often do, with a number of questions. Some of them are general in nature, others will be based on detailed uh, looking at the, the relevant verse or verses. But let's begin at the beginning. As we know, anyone who would be called upon to explain the Maimariva, the sin of the rock, will probably take the classic route, namely, where did it all go wrong? The answer is Moshe was told to speak to the rock, but in the end, he hit the rock. And this explanation always brings in its wake. One still needs to understand that they're both miracles. As much as one could say that speaking to the rock is a greater miracle, but is the difference between them that decisive? It's the difference between success and failure? I mean, I think we're dealing with luxury points here. It's either a Mahadrin Mina Mahadrin miracle or just a Mahadrin miracle. I think most people would be happy with both. 
that somehow it was the difference between right and wrong, between success and failure. And we should know further. If you have a look in Perik Kaf Pasuk Ches, again, Perik Kaf Pasuk Ches, <coughs> what do we see there? The people have complained. Hashem says to Moshe, Take the staff and gather everyone together. That needs some understanding. As far as we're concerned, the worst thing that Moshe can do is to use the staff. But Hashem tells him to take it. The last thing he should do is hit the rock. But the first thing Hashem tells him to do is to take his staff. I mean, what is he being set up for, for, for a mistake? It's the worst thing Hashem should have told him, put the staff away. But he tells him to take it. What's he taking it for if he's not meant to use it? Furthermore, in the event, meaning when it actually happens, as we know, Moshe hits the rock, and he hits the rock twice. And this now becomes even more difficult to understand because it, it's one thing to say, and it's bad enough, he should have spoken to the rock, but he hit the rock. And then not only does he hit the rock, but he hit it twice. So he did the worst thing that you could do twice. Just in case we were, could it get any worse than, than hitting the rock? Yes, he hit it twice. It sounds like insult to injury. But what's the meaning behind that? All of this will lead us closer, as it always should, to, to the words of the Pasuk themselves. Let us look at Pasuk Ches. What does Hashem say? Kaches hamate, take the staff, ha'keles ha'eda, atova v'anachicha, gather them all together. V'dibartem elasele le'enehem, v'nasan, okay, speak to the rock. And then what will happen? And here we need to watch these words carefully. Speak to the rock, v'nasan me'mav. And it will give forth its water. Okay. That is the recipe for what is to happen. Speak to the rock. It will give forth its water. Then it says, And extract water for them from the rock. And let's ask about The earlier phrase says, The rock will give forth its water. If it gives forth its water... It doesn't, you've already received it. What then is added by the second phrase? Extract the water. You can't extract the water. It's already been given. So it's a double expression. What else do we note? Again, even closer now. How is the water referred to? In the first phrase, it says, V'nasan me'mav. It will give forth meimav. What does meimav mean? It's water. Why is it called it's water? Because it's the water in the rock. Next phrase. And you will draw out water. We see that the first phrase uses the pronoun it's water. The second phrase, just water. What's the difference between meimav and my? A final point within this Pasuk. How does the Pasuk conclude? Vihishkisa, which incidentally, it's very interesting, Vihishkisa, 
lahashkos is to, is to give to drink. That's what a shepherd would do to its flock. The Jewish people don't need to be watered in that way. Moshe doesn't have that role of giving them to drink. They're quite capable of drinking themselves. Just give them the water, they'll, they'll, they'll take care of the rest. But we see that Moshe's role as the mashke, the hishkisa, somehow is important. And who should he give to drink? Es ha'eda, the congregation, the es bi'iram, and their animals. Not to forget the animals, right? They also need water. But what's significant is that when the water actually comes out, it says in Pasuk, the end of Pasuk Yud Aleph, by Yitzu Mayim Rabim, much water came out, Batesht Ha'eda Uve Iram. The Ada and their animals drank. In other words, the phraseology it's shifted a little bit. The original plan refers to Es Ha'eda the Es Iram. Sounds like there's almost uh, two different categories. In the end, Ha'eda Uve Iram seems to merge them all together. The Kolzeh Omer Darsheni. All of this needs to be understood. And nothing more needs to be understood than the point where Moshe seems to depart from the divine plan. And it is all contained within the words Pasuk <coughs> Yud. This is all mamish within a, a, just a few psukim. Vayakilu, Pasuk Yud. Vayakilu Moshe va'aron esakahol. Moshe and Aaron, they gather the people together, El Pnei Asalam, so they could, to, to the rock. And what does Moshe say? <coughs> Listen now, Morim. Shall we take out water from, from, from the rock? And what is the meaning of Morim? What, whatever it means, this was the turning point. As a res- this was the, the initial stage of what, what, what ended in Moshe hitting the rock. Morim itself means teachers. <coughs> Uh, that's a very interesting... M- most people are not um, offended or startled if they're called Morim. It's actually, it's a good thing. It's a, it's a standard thing. Morai I've never heard anyone take umbrage at, at, at a phrase like that. But somehow, Moshe calls them the Morim, he calls them the teachers, and it's the beginning of, of a downward uh, uh, path here. What's it all about? Says Rabdavid Tevel, <coughs> and these, this is in his drushas, classic drushas, Nachlas based of it and Nachlas of it. The key is in a medrash. Pasukhes says that Moshe is to speak to the rock. Speak to the rock. Uh-huh. What should he say? Doesn't say. Doesn't specify. I think we could only imagine. Fill in the blank. It's not too hard. Speak to the rock and say, I don't know, so says Hashem, give forth your waters, or something like that. But along comes the Medrash, and the Medrash says, you know what Moshe needs to say? Shanei alav. Learn next to the rock. Perik echad. O halacha achas. Learn the perik of Torah. Learn the halacha. V'humotzi mayim in hasela. And the water will come through. It's amazing. According to the Medrash, Moshe is not to address the rock and tell it to, to give water, but rather, all he needs to do is to is to dvatara. In the proximity of the rock, the water will come. What's the meaning of this? 
And it's also specifically interesting because the, there are two types of things that Moshe can say. Perik echad or halacha achas. What do those two things have in common? Perik and halacha. They're in the area that we call Torah Shabalpeh, the oral law. The oral law consists of prokim chapters and halachas. Because Torah Shabichtav consists of parshios and psukim. But Hashem didn't say, read a parsha or read a pasuk. He said, shanea lav. Say a halacha. Why specifically Torah and why specifically Torah Shabalpeh? It is interesting that in our relationship between the two areas of Torah, the Medrash informs us that from the beginning, the Jewish people had an easier time with Torah Shebechtav than they did Torah Shabalpeh. In the, the famous question as to why the Jewish people needed Har Kigigis, Har Sinai on top of them, making them an offer they couldn't refuse to receive the Torah, even if they've already said Nasev and Nishma, why coerce people to receive something they've already accepted willingly? It's, it's famous as Tosus's question, but it actually preceded Tosus by many centuries because it's, it, the question is in the Medrash Tanchuma in Parshas Noah. And the Tanchuma says, because when they said Nasev and Nishma, that's about Torah Shebechtav, if it's written down, okay. Torah Shebaal was a separate issue, and for that they needed Kafaleim Harkigigis. Now there's a lot to ponder in that Medrash, but what we do see is it's a split relationship from the beginning, much more amenable and accepting of Torah Shebechtav. Torah Shebaal took a little, more, <coughs> a little more work until they were ready. Another very interesting statement that, that we find in the Sifrei. Reb Shimon Ben Yochai says, it's quite a well-known statement, I believe. Lo nitna Torah ele ochle haman. The Torah could only be given to those who ate the man. Lo nitna Torah ele ochle haman. That first generation of receiving Torah, only if you eat man. So the question is why? And perhaps one could explain on a basic level. They saw their, their, their food coming to them directly from Hashem. It gave them a different relationship. And, and they had no parnasa worries because everything was literally, uh, their, their, their food fell out of the sky. It could mean many things. But it also means something else. We find that two classic points of analogy with regards to Torah are bread and water. The Torah is compared to bread. Lechu lachmu belachmi, says the Pasuk in Mishle, and it's compared to water. Pasuk in Yeshaya. Hoi lachu Torah. And these are the two most basic foodstuffs that you can have, bread and water. And bread itself is a, more, is a, is a general concept. And the al HaKadosh explains that the comparison of Torah with bread and water corresponds to the two areas of Torah. Bread, the comparison of Torah to bread is Torah Shebichtav and to water is Torah Shebaal Peh. It's very interesting, it didn't occur to me beforehand, but one of the classic Torah Shebaal Peh uh, mitzvahs is Nisuch Hamayim. It's the once a year on, on, on Sukkot's libation of water. It's very interesting that that is, that is rated as a Halacha Lamosha Misinai, pure Torah Shebaal Peh. And it, and it actually takes the form of offering water on the Mezbeah. And what is, but what is the depth, says the Al-Sheikh, behind this analogy? 
because you, to survive you need bread and you need water. Just like with Torah, you need both. And moreover, water is not just something that you drink alongside the bread, having Torah Shabbat, Peh with Torah Shabbat. You actually need water within the bread in order to make it edible. So that, which means that if you would have bread and water, you're actually having water in two forms. Water in the glass and water in the bread. Because you also need Torah Shabbat in order to, to make Torah Shabbat uh, edible, so to speak. And this is the duality of that comparison. But, but the matter goes one stage further. Because the relationship of Torah to physical matter, it's not just a point of comparison. The Zohar says, as explained by Reb Chaim Yuvalajan in, in the Nefesh HaChaim, the Zohar says that engaging in Torah allows for the ongoing upkeep of the world. How so? Because the Torah is the energy. It is the first created energy which then descends throughout multiple ever-increasing levels of physicality until we reach the physical world. As we know, there's many different planes of existence, beginning with the absolute spirituality of Hashem, which cannot be even described or fathomed. But then somehow there's an interface between that absolute spirituality and our physical world. And it is ever-increasing levels of physicality. But it begins with the very first created entity, which is the Torah itself. And at the risk of preempting uh, uh, certain chidushim that are, are much discussed in, in physics, what that means is that the physical matter of the world is actually a, a, a conversion of effectively Torah energy into, into physical matter. But what does that mean for us? What it means is that the physical entity called bread is itself a product of the conversion from Torah energy of Torah Shebichtam. And the physical entity called water is itself the product of the conversion of Torah energy of Torah Shebalpeh. Now, as we can appreciate, that's a very lofty idea. And we can also appreciate that if you look at your bread and if you look at your water, I don't know that you're likely to see that much Torah Shebichtav or Torah Shebalpeh there for the simple reason that it has undergone so many levels of successive uh, physicality that uh, all you have is the physical product in front of you. However, that wasn't always true. Not for everything. We find that the man had an interesting property to it. It was completely absorbed within, within the system. There was no waste. That means that the man itself was not normal food. Somehow it was a, had a much more spiritual quality. And the question is, why? Says Rabdova Tevel. Look at the conduit through which these entities came, and then you'll see. We know that we had the three Parnasims, Gmarantinus and Daftes, the three Parnasim, the three benefactors or conduits in whose merit we received man in the merit of Moshe, the water in the merit of Miriam, and Anani Hakovid in the merit of Aaron. 
Now, what that means is that motion as the conduit for our food. But of course, whatever flows through that conduit partakes of the level of the conduit itself. What do we know about Moshe? We discover that Moshe's physical existence is of a much more elevated quality than of other people. This was what emerged after the famous episode where Aaron and Miriam wondered why Moshe was acting differently than them in terms of receiving prophecy. Why does he separate from his wife, etc.? The end of Parshas Balosacha. We're also prophets. We didn't do that. And that's when Hashem said the level of prophecy of Moshe is unique. It is more elevated than anyone else. And the reason why is because Moshe's own physical makeup is more elevated so that it does not inhibit receiving prophecy on the highest level ever. That's why Hashem says any other prophet receives prophecy when he's asleep or in a dream or in a trance because he needs to be in that state for his soul to loosen itself from his physical existence to be receptive to the, to the message of Navua. Moshe can receive Navua when he's awake. But what does that tell us? It tells us that even as Moshe's soul is fully in it, connected to its body, even when he's fully conscious, it's still not impeded or inhibited in any way. This is the unique level of the Madrega of Moshe Rabbeinu. But what does this mean for us? What it means is that if Moshe is the conduit for the man and Moshe's own existence is categorically more elevated than everyone else, that means that the level in which the man will be converted into something for this world will be on a higher level. And that's where there'll be no waste product, for example. And it can taste like whatever you want it to. It has these miraculous properties. We, we're not aware of that with regards to, um, to the water of the, of the well, etc., that it had similar things. Because Miriam was, quote, unquote, a regular Nevia. And therefore, being much more in the physical world, whatever came through her came, came down in a much more physical level. The water was just simply water. But for Moshe, <coughs> the man that came through Moshe came into the world at a higher level. And what are the implications of this idea? That the, the roots, the Torah Shebechtav roots, which is the energy where bread comes from in the first place, were yet discernible, were yet palpable within the man. And that is the deeper understanding of the Medrash, which says that the Torah could only have been given to the generation that ate the man. Namely, it was only because by eating the man, which is basically, it's got, it yet has the Torah discernible within it, they were ingesting Torah energy, which then made them more receptive fundamentally to Torah. But now we understand why they, they were much more absorbing and receptive to Torah Shebechtav less so to Torah Shabal Peh, which needed to be forced on them, because it's only Torah Shebechtav coming from the man that came in at that elevated level. The water from which Torah Shabal Peh comes from came in as normal water. And that is how matters rest until we come to Parshas Chukas. 
Because what happens? Miriam dies. There's no water. And it now falls upon Moshe to provide water for the people. So, from our perspective, on a simple level, what does this mean? Until now she was providing it. She's not here, so you provide it. And what are you providing? The same thing. It's not the same thing. Based on our discussion so far, we understand that we are at the threshold potentially of a historic moment. Namely, that Moshe should now be able to give the people water on the same level that he's been giving them bread until now. In the same way that he's been, because it comes through Moshe, the, root, the Torah roots of bread have been discernible. So if he gives them water on that way, then the Torah Shabbat pair roots within the water should also be discernible. That is what is, is on the cards. That's what's in the offing. And now we understand why it makes such a difference how the water comes out. It cannot come out through a physical action. It's got to come out through speech. Because what needs to happen here is that you need the oral nature, the Torah Shabbat nature of, the, of where the water is coming from to yet be discernible. So every element of its, of its being brought into the world needs to be in the realm of speech. And not, and not action. And not only does it need to be in the realm of speech, it needs to be in the form of Divrei Torah. But as we saw, not only in the form of Divrei Torah generally, rather, Perek Echad, Halacha Achas, Torah Shabal Peh. The way that the water is accessed from the rock has to be through Torah Shabal Peh, because it's the Torah Shabal Peh element within the water that needs to yet be present within the rock. That's why it's drawn out specifically through Perik Echad, the Halacha Achas. Wow, that's a completely different understanding of what is potentially available. But we'll also appreciate that this type of water is not necessary for all the intended recipients. Because as we've seen in the Pasuk, the water is needed, A, for the Jewish people, B, for their animals. And without offending the animals, they don't need high-level Torah Shebaal Peh water. They'll be fine with normal water. And what does this mean for us? It means that there are actually two types of water that Moshe needs to take out from the rock. Torah Shebaal Peh water for the Jewish people and regular water for the animals. And with this in mind, we understand why he was told, as at the same time that he was told to speak to the rock, he was also told to take a staff. Because he'll need it. Not for the water that's intended for the Jewish people, but for the water that's intended for the animals. And now we understand why the Pasuk describes the water flowing from the rock in two different ways. Because these are two different types of water. And now, if we go back to Pasukhes, and we preface by, by saying, as we've seen on a number of occasions, that the Torah will often present two ideas and then qualify them respectively. So idea 
A and B, and then qualifying idea A and B. Let us see how that plays out in Pasuk Ches. Hashem says to Moshe, Kach es hamate. The first thing he's told to do is to take the staff. Then, uh, Okay, gather the people. And speak to the rock. So he's been told, A, to take the staff. B, to speak to the rock. To what end? With what purpose in mind? Says the Pasuk, A, it will give forth its water. That is an elaboration of take the staff. If you, hit, if you take the staff and you hit it, so then it will give forth its water. And why is it called its water? Because this is the water that, that it's, it's natural moisture that exists to, uh, to some degree within the rock. In the same way that the rock is a physical entity, so to the water, its water. But then there's another type of water vote. Say mayim in And then you need to extract mayim, not meimav. Mayim. In the pure sense, in the purest of senses, vihishkisa. You need to be instrumental in giving it to the people to be the conduit. So to summarize, because it's quite a, a, a new way of looking at the Pasuk, even though it's a product of paying as close attention as we can to the phrases and, and, and the words. But basically, Moshe, there's two types of water to be taken for the rock, for two intended recipients, groups of recipients, and they're done in two different ways. And that's why it says, Vishkisa es ha'eda ve'es be'iram, which, which divides between those two intended groups, because they're, they're not the same drinking experience. The Eidol will have a different type of water than Be'iram, than their animals. That's the plan. But then something happened. And what, and what happened? Moshe judges, and this is where it becomes almost like irreducibly difficult to, to, to know how it is that Moshe hears all this and still departs, and, and, and we're left to try and understand, which is practically impossible. To, to, to presume to fathom what's going on in Moshe's mind. But we do see that he, he prefaces by calling the people Morim, teachers. What's wrong with being a teacher? a teacher? It's good to be a teacher. It is good to be a teacher, unless you're meant to be a student. That's the only time that you shouldn't be a teacher. When you're meant to be learning, it's not good to be teaching. The Jewish people, Moshe judges if this is meant to be a Kabbalah HaTorah experience, making them more receptive. There's got to be a fundamental basis of, of receptivity, of receptiveness for, 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 for the people. And he, Moshe judges they don't have it. He calls them Merim as if to say, you are categorically at odds with the frame that you need to be in in order to be receiving. And therefore Moshe judges that to, to try and extract Torah on a level that the people seem to show no interest in and are fundamentally not receptive to, will either be redundant and possibly even a negative thing. And that is why, in the event, Moshe judges that the people are to receive water no different than normal water and no different than the animals. And that is why the Pesach says that he, he, he raised the staff and he hit the rock and he hit it twice. And our question was, well, if he's not meant to hit the rock, okay, he hit the rock. You've got to hit it twice. You're not even meant to hit it once. You've got to hit it twice. But now we understand, no. He was meant to hit it once. 
for the animals and speak to the rock for the people. But having judged that the people will, be, will, will, not, it will not be a positive venture to try and speak to the rock if they're not in receiving mode, but they still need water. But there's no reason not to receive the water in exactly the same way that he extracted it for the animals. And that's why he hits the rock twice. Once for the animals, once for the people. And then what, what's the result? The result is, in Pasigid Aleph, Ayitzu Mayim Rabim, a lot of water came out. <laughs> what does that mean, Mayim Rabim? It means just more of the same. And in the end, Vatesht Ha'eda Uve'iram. And who drank from it? All together. The congregation and the animals. There's no distinction between them. In the plan, in the instruction, they were segregated from each other. They were distinguished from each other. Because there was two types of water leading to two completely type of drinking experiences. But in the end, it was just Mayim Rabim. And everyone drank the same type of water. So this, again, it's, a, it's a, just a breathtaking understanding. And again, it starts with the words, it starts with the psukim, and then that's, from there the ideas emerge. <clears throat> but to, it really was now, it's a, a tragedy of historic proportions. Because if what could have happened was that the Jewish people would have been able to be receptive to Torah Shabal Peh, having received water on that level the way they'd received Torah Shabal through the man, well, a lot of history would have been changed. And that's why the, the, there are certain sfarim which explain that they're called Meimariva because Machlokas comes from, from this. A lot of Machlokas in, in Torah comes from this. Well, what's this got to do with Machlokas? Because the, the level of connectivity was lessened and there has to be worked out through machlokas and different points of view and, and so on and so forth. But I do think, having seen this uh, incredible uh, explanation of the, of the, uh, the Nachlas David, of Rabbi David Tevel, however you understand the Memoriva, I feel it is well worthwhile looking at the final Pasuk because much of our focus and attention when we deal with the Memoriva is what did Moshe do wrong? And then you have to try and explain it and try and understand it and then as best you can. But what is the final posuk? Posuk yud gimel. Moshe's punished. Meaning, meaning whatever, whatever the final posuk will say, it's not enough to get Moshe off the hook. On, on, Hashem judges him as, as being deserving to be punished. With it, after everything that we've said. And how does posuk yud gimel conclude? Hey, mamei mariva. These are called the mamei mariva. And why are they called the mamei mariva? The Jewish people contended with Hashem. That's why they're called Meimariva. And that's very interesting. Because the first 12 verses have all been about Moshe and maybe about Aaron. And Moshe was told to speak to the rock, but in the stand he hit the rock, and, and that's that. It says the Torah, that's all true. But Moshe's mista- Moshe doesn't make a mistake like that in a vacuum. You know what the name of this place is? Meimariva. And you know why? Because the Jewish people were contentious and argumentative. No less but for Moshe and even with Hashem. Asher Rova B'nei Yisrael Hashem. Again, it's in the, in, the, in the great balance of things, that doesn't excuse Moshe. But the enduring name of the place is not Moshe's issue. It's the Jewish people's issue. 
And I think that's important because whenever we, we learn a section like this in Torah, our goal needs to be to learn the relevant lessons. It's, it's important to realize who the lessons are directed to in order to learn them. If we thought that the subtotal of Memoriva is about Moshe's mistake, we might be in a luxury zone where we're thinking, what can I learn from Moshe's mistake? He took a wrong turn. How can I avoid taking the turn of Moshe Rabbeinu? We're unlikely ever to be in the situation of Moshe Rabbeinu, so that's hardly relevant. But once you see the final postic which says, something went very wrong here, and the, the enduring name of the place is after the problem the Jewish people had. So now the, now the, the takeaway question from Memoriva is, what can I learn from the Jewish people? to avoid repeating their mistakes, because we're infinitely more likely to be in, in their situation than we are in Moshe's situation. And, and, and as much as at the end of the day, Moshe was, was expected to have proceeded with the plan, but the issue that, that he detected with the people is, is also a correct issue. And, and that's for, for us <coughs> in our own experiences. We might often find ourselves in situations like the Jewish people were probably not as extreme, but at least in, the, in that direction, and, and, and to know that there's something called Ravu Es Hashem, to be contentious. So I, I think we we'd do, will do much, gain much more from being sure not to repeat their mistake than repeating Moshe's mistake. Either way, certainly a great deal, I don't think t- tonight was of our lighter type of uh, discussions between the Netziv of the Para Aduma, Moshe Rabbeinu, Meimariva. We haven't even touched the other sections of the Torah, but uh, of the Parsha that is to say, but certainly enough to, to contemplate for now. I wish you all a good night and wonderful week ahead. All the very best. Thank you. Pleasure, pleasure. Thank you, Rob.